You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Foundations class. And as you can see, I'm not here this week. As it turns out, I had planned a trip to see our friend and former classmate, Laura Hartley, in Texas and see her new house there. And so that is where I am today. But the class will go on. And I want to thank my family for stepping in, helping me coordinate things so that we can continue to push forward in our series. And I want to let all our new people know, don't panic. I'm not gone a lot. Um, It just so happens that this time I was gone the second week and I just didn't want to lose any time or momentum in the class. So we're going to have a video class today. So last week we started our fall teaching series. It's called Christian Values in Changing Times. And really what we're going to be looking at is a cluster of questions of hot topics that are happening in our culture and trying to really uh, get a handle on them from a distinctly Christian worldview. And we're asking a lot of big questions about what should it look like to live as a Christian in our current kind of global and um, multicultural and multi-religion society. And I want to begin to cast that vision for us today and beginning to look at some critical scriptures. Now, one of the key points that we talked about last week was that we as Christians need to move beyond uh, political parties, beyond titles like being liberal or conservative, to a distinctly Christian worldview, one that transcends political boundaries, because we all know Jesus transcends political boundaries. And so when we think about our citizenship as Christians, we think about it in this way, that as Christians, we are citizens of heaven first. And we looked at a couple of key passages there in Philippians and Ephesians talking about our citizenship in heaven. So we are Christians first. We're not Americans first. Uh, We're not Republicans first or Democrats first. We are Christians first. And we really want to begin to meditate this fall on what does that mean that we have a citizenship in heaven, but we also have an earthly citizenship here on this planet. And how do these two things begin to interface? So we're going to talk about these themes and begin to unpack these questions all this fall. Now, the question I want to open up with today is um, the question, are humans more valuable than animals? This is a big question in our culture today. And um, I thought it would be great to start off with a little bit of a discussion. So I'm hoping some of you will just kind of jump in here. I'm going to have Bob stop the video for a few minutes. And we're going to just take a few minutes to talk about the question, who would you save first in an emergency? Your dog or your pet, it could be any pet, or a stranger. This is the question that I want you to talk about for the next few minutes, okay? So hopefully in your discussion time, you touched a little bit on the why of your answer, why you chose one or the other, 
or any kind of extenuating circumstances about your answer. You know, maybe it depends on if it's your pet or a stranger or whether you think the stranger is good or bad or evil or whether or not the, the age of the person, um, any sort of those factors. Hopefully those things came up in your discussion. So we'll come back to this question in a few minutes and I wanna lay some other groundwork as we move forward. So here's what I see in our church culture as a whole in America um, that really is causing a lot of confusion among many Christians when we talk about current events. Um, American Christians are just sort of all over the map when it comes to what we believe. Many people who come to church don't actually know what we believe. They kind of know what church culture believes in their church, but they don't have a lot of connection to what I call historic Christianity. Um, we've talked a lot in the class about the value of understanding some basics of church history and some of the reasons why that matters because it, it gets us a little bit out of our 21st century American culture and into the overall flow of global Christianity, starting with the apostles and forward. So when we think about these issues, many Christians just honestly don't know what the historic Christian position is on many controversial topics. Rather, what happens is that we have a tendency to just allow our feelings to guide us. Well, this just feels like the right answer. This just seems kind of offensive to me, or this option seems less offensive to me. When we think about our moral reasoning, is what I call it, and philosophers call it um, the realm of ethics, um, we often don't hear in our culture anything about objective standards of how we think about moral questions. Most of it is some kind of intuition or feeling. Something is very subjective and it happens inside of us, okay? So when we're thinking about many of the controversial questions that we're gonna be considering in this series this fall, we're going to be doing that through the lens of history and we're gonna to try to find our roots in history. And I think that that can help guide us through a lot of the cultural challenges that we're seeing and experiencing in the American church today. Another very foundational concept that we need to understand is that many of the conversations that we're having in our culture all revolve around a, one particular doctrine, and that is the idea of humans being created in the image of God. Now, I realize this might not be um, immediately, intuitively obvious to you, and you're wondering, like, how are all these topics fit into ideas about the image of God? But trust me, as we unfold these matters throughout the fall, I'm going to keep coming back to this doctrine of the image of God. And here's what I've noticed, is that many of the, the cultural conversations we're having right now could use some greater clarity about the image of God. And I think that this precious and very ancient Christian doctrine can really help provide some strong roots, some strong foundation for how we can answer these issues. So let's start with that. Let's start with the image of God. And here's what we need to know, 
is that the entire idea of human rights, you ever heard this term, human rights? The idea of human rights is founded squarely on the Judeo-Christian idea that humans are created in the image of God. So we're going to look at some critical passages right now. So get your Bibles out and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Now those of you who have been in the class for a while, you know from our study in Genesis a couple of years ago that Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us all about the beginnings of things, the beginnings of the world, the beginnings of creation, the beginnings of humanity, the beginning of evil. Um, Genesis is the book of beginnings. So we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and in particular, we're going to look at verses 26 through 28 right now. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These three verses form the entire foundation for the modern concept of human rights. And even though this is something that is not often repeated in scripture, it is a foundational doctrine that is assumed throughout Scripture. Let's look quickly at one more passage where this is repeated, and that is in Genesis chapter 5. So just flip forward a few pages, and we're going to read Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the account written of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them, and that when they were created, he called them man. And really, a better translation for that last part of that verse is he created, when he created them, he called them human. It's not just man, it's human. That he created both men and women in the image of God. This is the foundational understanding through all of Christian history of how we are to think about humans. And it's more than just a Christian doctrine. It also stretches all the way back into Judaism. And so if you talk to a Jew who really knows the Torah, um, you know, maybe somebody who's more of an of a Orthodox Jew, they will tell you about this idea as well. The, the idea that humans are created in the image of God is absolutely foundational to what it means to be a Christian and to live in a distinctly Christian way. So what do we learn by this passage? Here's just a few points that we learn. First, we learn that all humans, male and female, both men and women, are created in the image of God. There is equality among men and women because both have been created in his image. And only humans are created in the image of God. Plants and animals are not created in the image of God. 
And this is why we say in our culture, we have this phraseology of human life is sacred. Where do we get this idea? This is founded squarely on the Judeo-Christian idea that humans are created in the image of God. Then they have inherent dignity, value, and worth simply because they exist. And plants and animals do not have this this same quality of being created in the image of God. Um, nowhere in scripture is, it, is that ever described. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Um, what about this term of image? And really what Adam and Eve are, are they are God's representatives on earth. In the ancient uh, Mesopotamian world, which the early chapters of Genesis are uh, grounded in... Uh, Mesopotamia, in that area of the the land of the great rivers, Um, we see in that ancient culture that what kings would do is they would set up a statue to represent themselves in various villages so that those people would know that that representation of that king was kind of there almost um, as a godlike representation and, and watching them. But what's interesting about the Judeo-Christian worldview is that we are God's representatives. And we are almost there as like little kings to rule and reign over the earth. And we saw that back in Genesis chapter 1 where God gives this commission in verse 28 that, that the humans are to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. We are like the appointed little kings of God's kingdom, and we are here to rule and the earth and to steward his resources that he has put there, the animals and nature. So when we think about our foundational identity as humans, we think about this as life is sacred, that there is something special about us, and that we have a very special job to do that we are ruling and reigning over the earth. Let's look at another passage. Let's quickly turn back to Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2 is an expansion of creation day 6 from Genesis chapter 1. It's kind of like zooming in for the details. And God, uh, let's imagine I had a little paper accordion here. And we just saw the accordion closed. That's Genesis chapter 1. And then let's say I opened that paper accordion and you could see all the details in the accordion. That's Genesis chapter 2 as it pertains to to creation day 6. Let's look at a couple of key verses here where God describes his activity of creation. He says in verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now let's contrast that description with verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever he called each living creature, that was his name. Now you should notice some interesting similarities and differences between these two verses. A similarity is that both humans and animals 
were created from the dust of the ground. They're created from the same stuff, if you will. And God intervenes in both of their creations. We don't get the idea that they kind of evolve naturally. We more get the idea that God does something to intervene in his creation to, to make the man and the animals. But he makes them from the same stuff, that whatever this dirt is. I have a theory. I think that maybe one thing we all have in common as humans and animals is DNA. That God is, he used kind of similar genetic codes to create humans and animals. And we share that in common, but it took a divine intervention in order to make that happen. But we also notice a very important difference between humans and animals. And that is that only humans are created in the image of God. And in chapter 2, the phraseology that's used is that only humans um, receive the breath of life. Animals and plants do not receive the breath of life from the creator. Only humans do. This is probably analogous to whatever the image of God is in chapter 1. Only humans receive that breath of life in chapter 2. So when we think about the modern concept of human rights, um, we think about it from a Judeo-Christian point of view. And in fact, it's fascinating to read. You can just go on Wikipedia and type in the Declaration of Human Rights. This was written in 1948, right after the Second World War, when they were establishing the UN. And one of the foundational purposes of the UN, the United Nations, was to protect human rights. And we're going to just read a little quick excerpt here from the preamble of that declaration. It says that they've reaffirmed faith in fundamental human rights and dignity and worth of the human person. Notice the strong Judeo-Christian type of language that is present in this Declaration on Human Rights, that there is a fundamental right to dignity and worth of the human person just simply because it exists. And they're committed that all member states to promote universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. If you are a human being, you deserve respect. You deserve a level of kindness and respect and treatment. And that this is the foundation of what it means to be a free person. That freedom itself is part of the Judeo-Christian worldview and is a foundational pillar of what it means to be a Christian, that we are a people who protect human rights and that we are a protect. The reason we do that is because we believe freedom is uh, inherently noble and part of what it means to be a human person. In other words, what we're saying is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. The whole idea of human rights is founded squarely on the Judeo-Christian idea that humans are created in the image of God. 
And I want you to notice that the purpose of this is for freedom. Freedom is fundamental to what it means to be a human person, that we have fundamental rights as human beings. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, rich or poor, what race you are, what religion you are. You are entitled to fundamental kindness and respect and dignity and worth. And that is part of what it means to be a human this is why, for example, we have international laws against torture. Torture is something that goes beyond or is it a violation of the inherent value and dignity of human life. This is why we have international laws about certain kinds of warfare. There are some kinds of warfare, and warfare is brutal because we are basically lining up on sides in order to make a, a moral stand with our lives about things that we think are right and wrong. But there are some kinds of warfare that we think are even uh, so violating to what it means to be a, a human person that they are illegal. And if you engage in those types of torture, then you will, you could be, come under prosecution by international courts because you have engaged in that kind of warfare. So now, back to our discussion about animals. Remember the discussion we had a little while ago about whether or not we would choose to rescue a stranger or our pet, right? A little bit of a contentious question in our culture today. I wonder what some of our people in our oikos, how they would answer that question. That could be a great question to engage someone in your oikos with and lead to some very stimulating conversation. Now, the big question when we think about this is why? Why have our cultural sensibilities changed on animals? It has shifted remarkably in recent decades. For example, many um, animal acts in circuses are shutting down. In fact, entire circuses are shutting down because it is now looked upon as using uh, higher ordered mammals such as elephants as being morally wrong. We shouldn't be using animals simply for our entertainment. Um, hunting as a sport was popular 100 years ago and today is very frowned upon because it is looked upon as being a squandering of the Earth's resources. Animal testing is seen as cruel in the beauty industry, for example, or in the medical profession. There are many ethical laws governing how animals are used in medical and beauty and testing of beauty products and other products. In fact, there are entire beauty lines that you can buy, and they usually cost a little bit more because they are called cruelty-free. They are beauty products that were not tested on animals. And another one that is rising in popularity is we don't have any more Shamu shows. SeaWorld uh, came under sharp criticism a few years ago. There was a documentary um, making the rounds called Blackfish. And Blackfish was a documentary about a particular killer whale that was part of the SeaWorld family who killed one of its trainers. And what's interesting, and you can go on um, Netflix and other places to, to view this documentary, and, I, and you, if you're into the animal rights question, you, you might be interested in, in doing that. 
But one of the interesting questions that I had as a result of after watching this documentary is this. So one of the quotes from the documentary says that I think in 50 years, we'll look back and go, my God, what a barbaric time that we used mammals, higher intelligence mammals, simply for human entertainment. And there has been a sharp change in our culture about animal rights and these sensibilities. I'm going to play a clip right now from the Blackfish documentary. It's just a few minutes. And it's, it has some interesting footage from the early 70s when they first started rounding up these killer whales for the Shamu shows and talking to the people who were um, piloting those boats who were part of the team that gathered those animals. And I want to then uh, us to process this clip a little bit together. So we're going to play that now. It was a really exciting thing to do until everybody wanted to do it. What were they telling you you were going to do? Mm, <laughs> capture orcas. They had aircraft, they had spotters, they had speedboats, they had bombs they were throwing in the water. They were lighting their bombs with acetylene torches in their boats and throwing them as fast as they could to herd the whales into coves. But the orcas had been caught before and they knew what was going on and they knew their young ones would be taken from them. So the adults without young went east into a cul-de-sac and the boats followed them thinking they were all going that way while the mothers with babies went north. But the capture teams had aircraft and they have to come up for air eventually. And when they did, the capture teams alerted the boats and said, Oh no, they're going north, the ones with babies. So the boats, the speed boats, caught them there and herded them in. And then they had fishing boats with seine nets that they would stretch across so none could leave and then they could just pick out the young ones. We are only after the little one. And little one is, you know, a big animal still. But I was told because of shipping costs, that's why they only take the little ones. They had the young ones that they wanted in the corrals, so they dropped the seine nets, and all the others could have left. But they stayed. We're there trying to get the young orca into stretcher, and the whole fam damly is out here 25 yards away maybe in a, in a big line and they're communicating back and forth. Well, you understand then what, what you're doing, you know. Uh, I lost it. I mean, I just started crying. I didn't stop working, but I, uh, you know, I just couldn't handle it. And just like kidnapping a little kid away from a mother. Everybody's watching, what can you do? It's the worst thing I can think of, you know? I can't think of anything worse than that. Now, it, this really sounds bad, but 
When the whole hunt was over, there were three dead whales in the net. And uh, so they had Peter and Brian and I cut the whales open, fill them with rocks, and put anchors on their tail and sink them. Well, really, I didn't even think about it being illegal at that point. I thought it was a PR thing. They were finally ejected from the state of Washington uh, by a court order in 1976. It was SeaWorld by name that was told, do not come back to Washington to capture whales. Without missing a beat, they went from Washington to Iceland and began capturing there. I've been part of a revolution and two change of presidents in Central and South America and seen some things that it's hard to believe, but this is the worst thing that I've ever done, is hunt that wheel. So if there's time right now, I'm going to have Bob stop the video and discuss some of your reactions to this clip. What are some of the observations you have? What are some of the feelings that were evoked in you as you watched the clip? What were some of the questions you had? So if there's time for that, we'll stop the video. Now, one thing that really um, struck me as I watched this video clip for the first time is how intelligent these animals were. They had a sense that their children were being taken away from them. And the, the, the children had a sense of losing their parents. And the distress that they went through as a result of that, for me, was quite shocking. And so the question is, is how do we begin to make sense of this from a Judeo-Christian point of view? I think that we've, we've laid a great foundation the humans are created in the image of God. But what do we do with animals that seem to be extremely intelligent? You can train certain kinds of dogs to engage in rescue behaviors. You can train other animals to help the handicapped. So it's not like all animals are the same. You can't really train a lizard to help you answer the phone if you're a handicapped person. But there are some types of dogs that you can train to help you answer the phone. And so it's, it's just from an observational standpoint, we see that, wow, creation is diverse. There's a lot of different kind of animals, but they have a lot of different levels of intelligence and ability to interact with the world around them. So one of the handouts you're going to get today is a short article that I've written on the um, documentary Blackfish and kind of analyzing it from a Christian point of view. But what I want us to consider is these points that will be on the top of page two, is that whales were designed, we could say by God, 
to live in an open ocean and reside in pods or groups. We could say that whales are highly intelligent species capable of communicating and reaching certain levels of reasoning. Whales are a highly social species capable of bonding with their young, their pod, and even human beings. Whales are a highly emotional species capable of feeling such emotions as anger, trauma, and loss resulting from mistreatment or separation from their young or their pod. And because of their high level of intelligence, sociability, and emotions, whales deserve protection in their natural habitat and should not be on display for human entertainment. This is a more sophisticated way of stating what are the, some of the things that our culture is, is grappling with. And to me, this seems perfectly consistent with what scripture has to say. And we're going to unpack that right now. Let's talk about Genesis chapter 1 for a minute and look at a little bit more detail of what the Bible has to say about animals. Because this whole blackfish question in looking at this clip, really, I think um, we have to make sense of this from a Christian worldview standpoint. We can't say that all animals are the same intelligence. But what does the Bible have to say about that? So we're going to look at a series of verses here. Let's start at verse 20. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created living creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And we're going to drop down to verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And then we already read chapter 2, verses 7 and 19. And so what do we learn from this? Here's a few key points. There is this word, create, in English, in our English translations. It's used three times in Genesis chapter 1. And it is the Hebrew, Hebrew word, bara. And what's interesting about this word is that it seems to be used at three critical moments in Genesis chapter 1. One is the creation of the heavens and the earth, that God created it. That which didn't exist came into existence. But then there's the second moment where God barras his creation. And that is at the appearance of these more advanced life forms on creation day five. These creatures with which the water teems, birds and the birds in the air, these great creatures of the sea, as they're called in verse 21, I think this is an allusion to those hired ordered mammals like whales and dolphins, these great creatures of the sea. These are the creatures that God creates. And then he uses the word bara again at the creation of human beings. So plants are not bara creations. Isn't that interesting? Plants are not bara creations. Rocks are not bara creations. The land is not a bara creation. These higher ordered animals and humans, though, are bara creations. And we also see this word they became living creatures. This is the word nefesh in Hebrew. 
These are soulish creatures. These are creatures that have a mind, will, and emotions. These are very special animals. So we're not talking about tiny fish or lizards or insects. We're talking about higher-ordered mammals that are nefesh creatures. They're soulish creatures that have mind, will, and emotions. And isn't that a beautiful picture of our higher-ordered mammals, such as whales, dolphins, and even the animals that are described in chapter 1, verse 24, of these livestock animals that we need to help us work the land. These are higher-ordered mammals that we need for our well-being that are easily domesticated that will help us with farming, which was such an essential part of the ancient world. So when we think about these creatures with mind, will, and emotions, here's how we can begin to think about these creatures in relationship to humans. Humans alone are created in the image of God. Humans alone worship God. That is a very special feature of what it means to be a human. Humans rule and manage the earth. But soulish animals, nefesh animals, express mind, will, and emotions. And these animals also have value, but it's not the same value as humans. Only humans are created in the image of God. Only humans have had that breath of life of the creator given to it. But that's not to say that animals have no value. Rather, that they also have mind, will, and emotions. So here's another way that we might say this from a classical Judeo-Christian point of view. Some creatures have bodies. A cockroach has a body, right? Some creatures have a body and a soul. They are nefesh. They have mind, will, and emotions. Your pet dog is a nefesh creature. And humans alone have a body and a soul that were nefesh and a spirit. We have the image of God. We have the breath of life. These are the qualities I think that we can look at through observation in our world and through scripture to understand and make sense of the creatures on earth. So we don't want to say animals are human or that it's inhumane to harm an animal because animals and humans are not the same. But we also don't want to make the error that humans have no value or that animals have no value. Um, We want to think about these things from a biblical point of view. Logically speaking, humans are either equal to animals or they are not. And here's where I'll give my my weekly plug, almost weekly plug, for taking a logic class, because logic can be so helpful. So this is kind of an, an axiom, if you will. Either humans and animals are equal or they are not. Those are the only two options that we have. If they are not equal, then there must be some quality that humans have that animals lack. Now, from a Christian point of view, what would this quality be? I think it's that humans are created in the image of God. Humans have a special capacity because they have been given the breath of life. The animals do not have. So even as beautiful and elegant and intelligent as animals like whales and dolphins and even some dogs are, um, they do not have the image of God. But from a secular point of view, let's just suppose for a minute that God does not exist. 
and we're going to be in a worldview. We're going to just try on the worldview as a non-Christian, as a secular point of view, okay? Any difference between animals and humans is completely arbitrary. Why should that quality count? Birds have wings and humans don't. Does that mean humans are worthy of superior ethical treatment? There is no physical quality or even emotional quality that you could point to, but difference between animals and humans that would not be completely arbitrary. You would just be picking something. There is no quality that makes humans ethically more worthy than animals. And this is why some people in our culture want to claim that killing chickens for food is a form of the Holocaust because they are conflating humans and animals as having equal value. Another question from a secular point of view is this. Are humans ethically equal to plants? If we're, if we're ethically equal to animals, maybe we're also ethically equal to plants. Plants are a form of life. If we are not, then there must be some quality that humans have that plants lack. But why should that quality count? After all, plants can live off sunlight and humans cannot. Maybe, that, maybe living off sunlight is more valuable than being a human because it's better for the atmosphere. It's better for, to help uh, counteract global warming. Can you see how these are very arbitrary uh, qualities that we would point to? But wait, are humans even ethically equal to non-living things? See, once you go down the path of the secular point of view, it gets very difficult to begin to order your life forms and which life forms have more value and intrinsic worth than other life forms or even non-living life forms because everything is so interdependent. From a secular point of view, either we arbitrarily pick some quality to separate us ethically or we conclude that everything, even bacteria and rocks, can have equal ethical value to us. The only way out of that conundrum is to start talking about function, that some humans have different functions than animals, and we start weighting that certain functions are more important than other functions. And we'll come back to that conversation a little bit later in the fall when we talk about issues related to abortion and pro-life. And so when we think about this question of animals and humans and their distinctives from a secular point of view, the question then becomes, are humans merely just advanced animals? What difference does all of this conversation make that humans are created in the image of God? Well, if we were to adopt a secular point of view, uh, we would say something like humans are on a continuum of animals. We're somewhere at the end of that continuum, somewhere near whales or apes or other advanced mammals in terms of our intelligence. Some people would even make the case that we're actually less intelligent than those animals because we make war on each other. We propagate evil on each other, whereas animals don't seem to do that as much. The only difference between humans and apes then in a secular point of view is one of a difference of degree rather than in kind. And this is where we must make sure that we understand 
the distinctiveness of being a Christian. And that is that animals and humans are different in kind. We have a fundamental key difference between humans and animals, and that is that we have been created with the image of God, that we have the breath of life in us, and that, that has been given to us by our creator. So in the evolutionary, the secular evolutionary point of view, they would say, no, that's not true. We're not different in kind. We're different in degree. Rather, you know, you have cockroaches down here and you work your way up to lizards and then birds and then eventually advanced mammals like whales and, and apes and then humans at the top. They would just say that it's all in the same continuum. It's all difference in degree but that humans are really just advanced animals. And this is where we need to understand that worldviews make a profound difference. Um, it's not just some weird esoteric philosophical distinction. This, as we're going to see, plays out in our culture in a number of ways, this difference in worldviews. So let's just look real quick at one brief example of how this worldview difference plays out in our culture. And that is with this question, is it okay to eat animals? Now, I'm sure that some of you have watched the show Survivor. There's always, or there's frequently in the more recent seasons, an incident where um, live animals are given as a reward for a reward challenge, and it's often chickens. And then there's this internal debate that makes for good television of among the castaways of are we gonna eat the chickens or are the chickens pets? Uh, something to be preserved. And so we're gonna watch a little clip here of one of these kinds of conversations. And I want you to notice how this plays out. Notice what is looked at as being virtuous. Noble effort, we're happy for you. Enjoy. The guy's got the Chinese food reward. We should have coconuts that we already cooked, right? So we're left to make dinner. Puddle, come here. Do you guys want to eat the chicken? Hmm? Do you want to eat the chicken? They go for it, guys. I'm done. Okay. Who can kill it? I can, if you want me to. Okay. Let's do it. I am going to eat chicken. I'm going for his heart, his testicles, his stomach. I'm going for every visceral part of him. Do you know what you do? Hold the chicken, bring its neck. You think you can actually do it? I've never done it like that, but I know Joe could probably do it. Chicken! Come on, chicken! Come on! At camp, I vividly hear Julia say, you just ring the neck of the chicken. I don't want people to kill the chicken. It's, it's just not right. This is one thing I can do to save a life and he can go to have Chinese food with me. Now the character that you saw of the, of the Asian man carrying the chicken there at the end of the clip, he's kind of representing the idea that is on the rise in our culture, namely that proponents of animal rights hold that if animals and humans are of the same nature, then rights cannot be distinct to humans. You'll hear these people say, it's wrong to kill animals. Or as he says in the clip, it, this isn't right. It's not right that we should kill the chicken. And so he's trying to rescue the chicken from being killed. Well, saying the words it's wrong or it's right is a moral judgment. How do we come up with that standard 
of morality and how do we know that his standard is better than the other standard being presented in the clip namely that chickens are for eating and that it is more noble to feed a human a chicken who's starving on a desert island than it is to keep a chicken as a pet and so these are ethical questions that clash and this is a very real example of how worldviews can make a difference how we answer this question about um, are humans more valuable than animals sometimes has a very real effect and the thing is is that many of us we we've grown up in cities our whole lives now our grandparents were a little different my grandparents grew up in a, a more of a rural rural setting and my grandmother um, would kill chickens herself. Uh, she would butcher chickens, uh, even when she was first married. And they were much more in touch with the sources of their food supply and where things came from. But now living in cities and being urban dwellers, it's all grocery stores, right? And we're not in touch with slaughterhouses or even the mechanism or the process. You can see in the clip how they're even debating, how do you even kill a chicken? How are, how are we gonna we break its neck? What do you do? And um, so we're not as in touch with that if we're not living in a more rural setting where we have to depend on livestock for our well-being. And so in that point of view, you know, animals are there to serve the humans. And life is important and valuable because I want to have a good food supply. But for the Asian man, he's like, no, you know, this chicken life is, is saving and it's not right. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be uh, eating the chicken. So this is a, a clash of worldviews. Now, not all vegetarians or vegans um, believe in animal rights to this, to this extent. Some do, some don't. So that could be a great conversation in your oikos, is if somebody in your oikos is a vegetarian, uh, don't assume that they have this point of view. Ask them, say, hey, I'm just curious, uh, why are you a vegetarian? Uh, what is that about for you? And begin to inquire because many people who are vegetarians or vegans have adopted that lifestyle choice for a particular reason. And that would lead to a great conversation. Remember all of our conversations in previous classes about being curious first rather than judging first. So get into that discussion. But there's also a rise in our culture about concerns of ethical raising of animals. This is a whole other concern of how are animals treated. And because we said earlier that some animals are nefesh animals, they have mind, will, and emotions. You know, is the mind, will, and emotions of a chicken qualitatively different than that of a whale in a shamu show? You know, the, the, there are differences between those. Is it uh, morally wrong to keep chickens in tiny cages where they can't move? Uh, in, in, and they're just waiting to be slaughtered, or should they be free range? Should they be able to interact with their world the way that God in, created them to interact, but then we still use them uh, for our food supply? These are questions that um, it's okay for us to talk about and debate. We don't all have to agree about them, but these are, these are important questions for us to think about in light of what Scripture teaches. There's also a rising concern in our culture about the ethical slaughter, the, the ethical slaughter of soulish animals. Is there a more ethical way to kill an animal than other ways? And this has been um, some of the life's work of Temple Grandin. If you've seen the biography on her life, a lot of what she has done is helping slaughterhouses 
engage in more ethical treatment of their animals prior to slaughtering them. And she says, yes, animals are there to serve us as humans, but there's a humane way to raise them and there's a humane way to slaughter them. Because, you know, I don't know if she's a Christian, I don't know if she'd say it exactly this way, but what she's describing is that they are nefesh animals. They have mind, will, and emotions that ought to be respected on some level as they are serving us. So what does the Bible have to say? Is it okay to eat meat? Well, let's just look at a few brief passages together. So if you're still in Genesis, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 29. This is right after the passage we already read about humans. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, this this idea of green plants, these are a very important component of the food chain. And basically what God is telling Adam and Eve is, here's your food supply. It's these plants. And then we see when they come off the ark, Later in Genesis chapter 9, if you want to flip over a few pages there, verses um, 1 to 3. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon the creatures that move along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. And they are given into your hand. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So now, as part of the the covenant with Noah, God says, I'm expanding your food supply. It's not just plants, now it's plants and animals. And he gives them some instructions, though, that certain kinds of meat they should not eat in the following verses. Then if we were to look in the Levitical laws, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, we would read, more laws about food. And we would read that some animals were considered clean animals and some animals were considered unclean animals. And the Jews were allowed to eat clean animals when they were prepared a certain way. And they were not allowed to eat unclean animals. Now, of course, we would assume that people in other cultures in the ancient Near East ate both clean and unclean. Only the Jews had that particular set of laws. But then when we get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, a very important shift happens. And Peter, the apostle, has a vision one day. He's standing up on his roof, and he has a vision. And I want you to to remember that Peter is a Jew, so he's familiar, and he's following all of these food laws from the Old Testament. And here's what it says, starting in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw vision. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet fell down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And here Peter is referring back to those Old Testament laws about eating only clean foods that that God says are okay for his people to eat. 
The voice spoke to him at a second time and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. So in this vision that Peter has, he's not asleep, it's a vision. And uh, the translation here calls it a trance. And he sees this picture in his mind of these animals coming down from heaven. And he's trying to make sense of this vision. And he doesn't get the interpretation of this vision until a little bit later when Cornelius, the very first Gentile, comes to faith in Jesus Christ and gets baptized. His whole household gets baptized and they become saved. And they're the first Gentile Christians. And what God is, is giving Peter kind of a heads up about is that you've been thinking that all these foods are unclean and that certain people are unclean. And God is about to explain to Peter, no, these people, these Gentiles that you thought were unclean are not unclean. And they were not made unclean by the foods. And what we see later in Acts chapter 15 are more instructions about foods. And so they're told, again, not to eat foods that have been strangled. And this is a very similar instruction that God gave Noah way back in Genesis. And so what we have here is a picture that um, God has created a food supply for his people. He's created the earth with a renewable food supply. But when it comes to how his people eat, there are ways of eating that are more healthy than other ways, apparently, and that we want to think about and reflect on how we're to eat. Now, nowhere in scripture does it say that people today have to be vegetarians or vegans or that it is somehow immoral to eat meat. Rather, it has been the from ancient times, the practice of the Jews to eat meat. It was just that it needed to be prepared a certain way and certain kinds of foods were to be avoided. But when it came to the Gentiles, there was a broadening of this. And there's this issue of not eating meat that's been strangled. It's a little hard to tell in today's vernacular what that exactly is. We think maybe it's some type of meat that involves drinking blood, but, but that's a debatable point. But in general, we have freedom about how we eat. And in fact, Paul, I believe it's in the book of Colossians, I should have looked that up, uh, is it says, don't let people judge you about when you celebrate holidays or what food you eat. It, it, for religious purposes is, is kind of the context there. The idea here is, is we don't want to be caught up about food. We want to be more about how are we walking in the Holy Spirit and allowing God to guide us in our food choices as we walk in the Holy Spirit. But there is no biblical injunction that says vegetarian is more noble or more morally virtuous than eating meat. So if you like bacon, you know, that's up to your conscience. But when we look in what's called general revelation or medical research, what's interesting is that we do see a lot of trends these days that there is a rise in medical knowledge that there are detrimental health effects to eating too much meat. We are a culture that is inundated with meat because we are so prosperous. And this can have a detrimental effect on our health over the long term. And there's a growing body of research that shows that uh, a diet that is dominated in plant-based material can help us be healthier people. Now, that is from the realm of general revelation. So if we kind of begin to put both of these 
together. We kind of begin to put both of these revelations together. What do we get? What's the picture we get? Well, I think what the God is telling us as his church today is that food serves us and that animals serve us. We are not uh, differences in de- degree. We are differences in kind to animals. And animals are there to ser- serve us, and they're part of our food supply. But because he has made the, many of the animals who are in our food supply to be soulish animals, we ought to give them an amount of respect. So when we think about using nefesh animals like in entertainment acts, like circus shows or um, Shamu shows, or when we interact with highly intelligent creatures like horses and dogs, I think it's fitting and proper that we respect these animals and that we give them proper respect because of the way that God has created them, that they do have a level of awareness. It doesn't mean we need to worship them, and it doesn't mean that we're equal to them. But could we envision a worldview in Christianity where humans are distinct from animals, they're created in the image of God, but that we still can treat animals not as nothings, but within the realm of the way that God has created them and to respect them in that way and to to reflect on that and to think about that. Questions about our food supply are a very important realm for Christians to probe into. I don't think we should get legalistic about it. I don't think we need to get super political about it. It can be a conversation to explore and be informed about. Um, Questions about food supply and how our food supply is is raised and slaughtered and contaminated even. Um, These are interesting questions to probe as we are stewards of God's creation. And I think that those questions ought to be looked into and explored and and be curious about. But again, we don't have to be uh, contentious about it and divisive about it. The things we want to be united about are about our distinctiveness as human beings, distinctive from the animals, but also regarding animals as some animals as having soulish properties. Other questions we can debate internally as matters of um, differences of opinion or agree to disagree issues. So going back to our original discussion question at the beginning of the hour, who would you say first in an emergency, your dog or a stranger? Well, I honestly think how we answer this question is largely dependent on our worldview. If we're coming at this question from the position of as a secular person, a person who doesn't believe in God, and a person who believes in a secular form of evolution that all animals are just on a continuum and and humans are just at the end of that continuum. They're kind of an advanced mammal. We might be inclined to save our dog first because we have a relationship with our dog. We might even see our dog as more virtuous than the stranger, especially if the stranger is a criminal or morally evil, somebody that we think is morally evil. However, if we're a Christian and we have a fundamental belief in the dignity and distinctiveness of the human, that the human is created in the image of God, we might probably, hopefully, think about saving the stranger first, even if we don't know them and don't have a relationship with them. Even though we love our dog and, and, and we respect our dog, we see the human life as more valuable in that moment, and we go after that person first. But that's the kind of moral conundrums that we're in as a culture. When we see news stories like this one from about a year or so ago, where a toddler fell into a gorilla display at the Cincinnati Zoo. Now, there was some question as to whether or not the parents were neglectful, and that's why the toddler fell in. But 
the, the real outrage was that people were so upset about the killing the gorilla to save the toddler. And I think that a lot of the outrage stems from your worldview assumptions. If you see neglectful parents as being sort of morally reprehensible, and you see a gorilla as being an innocent bystander, and animals are all, are all on a continuum, then I can understand why some people would be outraged by killing the gorilla. And when you're presented in a, in a moment like this, who do we save? Now, the ideal scenario would have been for both of them to be saved, both the toddler and the gorilla. But maybe we save the toddler first and we try to save the gorilla in the process. But the zookeepers felt in this situation that option wasn't available to them. So they chose to save the toddler. The choice that they made, even if they weren't Christians, is more reflective of a Christian worldview. And I'm hoping that as we continue to develop this teaching series this fall, you'll begin to see how the Christian worldview, and in particular, the image of God concept, shapes so many conversations that our culture is having right now. And we're going to explore several practical applications throughout this series of what it means for humans to be created in the image of God. I look forward to being back with you next week when we'll continue this discussion and continue to explore the image of God in many of its applications. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.